Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, some new research has given us some information, you could say, about smoke from wildfires and not only what it does when it enters into the atmosphere and when it it reaches unprecedented levels, but what it might teach us about our health and about perhaps even nuclear winter. Let's bring in the co-author of a new study that takes a look at this. Ellen Robach is a distinguished professor in the Department of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers in New Jersey. Uh, He joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hi, how are you? Very well. How about yourself? Good. you are a, are a co-author of this report, taking a look particularly at the smoke that came from BC's wildfires in 2017. Uh, what were you looking for and what did you find? When we calculated how the climate might respond to a nuclear war, we, we found that smoke from burning cities would go up into the lower stratosphere and then it would be heated by the sun and lofted farther up and last much longer. This sun heating the smoke was part of our theory, part of our calculations, but now for the first time we've been able to actually observe it in nature. And we use satellites to look at the smoke that was pumped up there by these wildfires in British Columbia. And then the sun heated it and it lofted it another 10 kilometers and it lasted for many months. So we were happy that this natural experiment validated our computer simulations. And was that expected that it would last that long for several months, or did that come as a surprise? We had never seen uh, forest fires, that much forest fire smoke in the stratosphere before. So, our, yes, we, it, we, we thought that that's what would happen if, if the smoke ever got there, but this is the first time we saw it happen. And, and what about now? This is 2017. And do we know what's happening with it now or how long that uh, the smoke stays there? In that case, it lasted about eight months. And so it's, it's gravity finally won out and it, and it, it fell out. So uh, if, if there was a lot and, and the amount of smoke, although it was a lot by forest fire standards, was much less than we think would happen if there were burning cities Right. So, so, and I would imagine too. I mean, if we got to that point and that the cities were on fire and we were in the middle of a nuclear war, that might not be our first focus as to what's happening in the stratosphere. But it does give us, I suppose, a good well, idea. No, uh, if, if you were a target of nuclear weapons, of course, that would be horrible, and that would be your biggest concern: the blast, the fires, the radioactivity. But most of the world would be threatened by climate change even from a small nuclear war on the other side of the planet between, say, India and Pakistan. So the smoke would last long enough in the atmosphere to be blown around the world and last for years. And so that would make it cooler and darker at the Earth's surface and affect agriculture. Hmm. A, war, a war between the U.S. and Russia could even produce nuclear winter with temperatures below freezing in the summertime. And, and were we ever able to, to test something similar to this when there have been nuclear bombs that have been dropped? No, because all of the tests were done over a desert or over the ocean where there was nothing to burn. So it's the smoke from the fires that would cause the climate change. Right. And, and so is this the first time, or this is the first time, as you said, that we've had so much smoke in, uh, that came from the BC fires. Were we able to see particular or specifically, so I think people will remember in BC, people will remember breathing in smoke that, that summer and, and seeing the effects of it here. But how far did the, were those effects felt as far as other places around the world? Well, if it didn't get pumped up into the 
uh, upper atmosphere, it would just stay locally. And what you smelled was was the fire, the smoke that didn't get pumped up by this big uh, thunderstorm. But once it gets up into the stratosphere, there's no rain to wash out. It would spread around the world, and it would really diffuse and be be uh, much less concentrated. And so when it came out, you you probably wouldn't even notice it. Right. And, and it even might get caught up in rain and washed out. And was there something different about the BC fires that that were able, that helped you or were able to lead to this research? Because I think when when people think about them, yes, it was a bad fire season, but then we also have had such huge fires uh, in Malibu, and we've had other places burning. Was there something different about the BC fires? The smoke was caught up into what we call a pyrocumulonimbus, a, a, a big thunderstorm that was started by the fires, brought in water, and pumped it and added energy and pumped it all the way up above the troposphere where we live and pumped a lot of smoke up. In in uh, other places where such a situation doesn't take place, the lower atmosphere can be terribly polluted. Uh, I was in San Francisco last fall, and, and it had terrible air from the fires in California. Uh, so you need a special weather situation to pump it up that high. And it probably wasn't the biggest ever. It was only the biggest that we've ever observed because now we have satellites up, which we've had for the last uh, couple decades that can actually observe it. So we're in the situation where we can actually take advantage of what the satellites see. Then we put, we use the same climate model we use to calculate the climate change from a lot more smoke if there were a nuclear war. And we, uh, Test, we, we were able to simulate the, what happened with the smoke from the forest fires. So that gives us more confidence in our model. And, and is the information, do you think, does, it, does this now get used by the, the, the superpowers or the nuclear powers of the world? Or, I mean, do they already know this? Or is this something that needs to be brought to the attention of saying, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is we now have proof. This shows exactly what could happen. Uh, yes. Uh, in the 1980s, Russian and American scientists calculated that there would be nuclear winter from a war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And this information brought to Gorbachev and Reagan helped give them a reason to end the nuclear arms race. And so it was science informing policy. And the number of weapons has been going down ever since, but we still have enough weapons to produce a nuclear winter. Two years ago, the United Nations passed the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, pushed by more than 100 countries who were aware of this, this, these results and realized that they could suffer even if no bombs are dropped there. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, a civil society group, got the Nobel Peace Prize two years ago for doing this. For, and the treaty uh, on the August 6th, the 74th anniversary of dropping the bomb on Hiroshima, the 25th country ratified this treaty. And 25 more countries ratifying it, it will come into force. Unfortunately, the nuclear nations, the nine countries with nuclear weapons, are trying to ignore the will of the rest of the world. And countries that sort of feel like they're protected by nuclear weapons, even if they don't have them, like Canada, uh, have, have not signed this treaty yet. So there really needs to be a lot more pressure on all the countries of the world to uh, agree to actually get rid of nuclear weapons, because they can't be used in any rational way for warfare. They're, uh, they're weapons of mass genocide, and they don't have any really new, uh, military purpose either. And if you threaten to use them to deter an attack, and you, like if the U.S. attacked Russia or Russia attacked the U.S. and the other country didn't even respond, 
everybody in the first country would die from the climate response because it would get so cold and dark you couldn't grow any food. So if you say I'm using them for deterrence, you're acting like a suicide bomber. It's completely irrational, but we still can't get our heads around the, the real situation. So yes, we need a lot more publicity about this, and I hope this results of this work will, will remind people of the dangers. All right. And just just before I let you go with the research and what you found so far, where do you go next with this as far as this was, was quite a finding uh, using the smoke from the BC fires? What happens next? Well, we're trying to calculate what would be the climate response to different scenarios of war, uh, smaller war between the India and Pakistan or a bigger war. And we are then looking at the specific agricultural impacts in different parts of the world for different crops and then how that would affect the price of food and and whether there would be famine. So we're trying to look at all the, we're trying to calculate in more detail how much smoke would there be from burning cities and what is the material in the cities that would produce the smoke. It would be different. There's wood in cities, of course, but there's other stuff too chemicals, uh, plastics, and we want to get the characteristics of the smoke right when we do our future simulations. All right. Well, it's uh, it's frightening research, but fascinating as well. Uh, Alan Robach, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, if you've been out and about, you've likely seen a Foodora courier uh, now and then, maybe on a bicycle, uh, whizzing by you, getting that food. Maybe you've ordered food and had it delivered by a Foodora courier. But uh, there are hundreds of Foodora couriers in Toronto that are looking at the idea of unionizing. But what would this mean for other members of the gig economy? Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Larry Savage, professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University. Uh, Larry Savage, thank you so much for being with us this morning. No problem. Uh, first off, for people, we, we throw the term gig economy around quite a bit. And in this particular case, we're talking about Fedora couriers. Who falls under the umbrella of gig economy? Well, gig economy workers are workers who are in non-standard work arrangements. So think about uh, services like Foodora uh, or Uber, ride-hailing services, um, that it's the kind of worker who almost works through an app, and oftentimes their employers consider them not to be employees but to be independent contractors. And that's this issue of independent contractor versus worker is actually central to the push to, for unionization. All right. So, And so what are your thoughts when you first heard that the Fedora couriers in Toronto are going to be voting on uh, union certification, uh, the idea of perhaps joining uh, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers? In some ways, it's surprising because gig economy workers have not traditionally Uh, been what comes to mind when we think about unionized workers. But increasingly, I think as the economy moves more towards gig economy work, you're going to see more and more workers turning towards unions as a vehicle to make their jobs better. Which which seems a little bit odd because isn't if we go back to when the gig economy first started taking shape or first started gaining in popularity – it almost seems like part of the reason for that was people were tired of the structure and tired of being an employee, perhaps wanted to be an independent contractor and wanted to get away from that. Well, there are different reasons that uh, workers get into the gig economy. Some people want sort of some flexibility, but other people, I think, uh, turn to it because it's one of the only options available to them. But 
whether you are in the former category or the latter, I think the way that some of these gig economy employers have been treating their own workforces has really pushed the idea amongst those workers that they need protection. So, for example, Fudora and a lot of these gig economy employers, they misclassify their workers as independent contractors. And they do that so they can avoid having to meet minimum employment standards and protections that every other kind of worker is entitled to. So things like minimum wage or overtime, vacation pay, uh, health and safety protections, Canada pension and employment insurance. So gig economy workers and Fudora couriers aren't entitled to any of those things, uh, according to Fudora. And so couriers are seeking unionization in order to secure those basic employment rights. And what do you think, what impact, would it be a good thing as far as it would bring those uh, uh, safety measures and it would bring those things to the workers if this did happen, or or would it have negative consequences as well? Well, I think it would have, in general, it would have uh, positive um, outcomes for those workers. Look, this is very hard work. Uh, Courier work is done in extreme heat and extreme cold, the risk of accidents, in particular in large urban centers, is very high. So the idea that these workers don't have access to health and safety protection uh, is a huge issue. Uh, they don't get breaks, for example. Couriers are only paid four fifty per delivery, plus $1 per kilometer from the restaurant to the customer's home. And those rates in Toronto have been frozen for three years. So... They're actually, these workers are falling behind, even though the cost of living in large urban centers in Canada is, as we know, increasing. And so I think there is lots to gain uh, for Fudora couriers when it comes to unionization. Is there the possibility, though, uh, because, I mean, it's been working on this model and has been, obviously, there are people who have been willing to do the job under these conditions. Is there the possibility, then, though, unionizing? Would, could this model sustain that as far as now the company uh, does have to pay minimum wage and provide the benefits and such? Is there the possibility that, based on the model un- under which Fedora or a similar company works, it would no longer be able to operate? Look, uh, companies like Fudora, Uber, Lyft, they are very profitable companies. They can absolutely afford to pay uh, their workforces fair wages and fair compensation and still make huge profits. So I don't think that the model is disrupted in any way by unionization. Uh, do you think that, that this would work as a push then, perhaps, that the company would wake up or the companies in question would wake up and realize, okay, we need to treat our workers better? Maybe we don't, uh, because a lot of companies, for whatever reasons, uh, are, are frightened of uh, unions forming. Would it be enough of a push to say, fine, we're going to treat you better, we're going to bring in all of these things, but you don't need to unionize, we'll just do this? Uh, Well, the Fudora's entire push against unionization is based on this idea that their workforce are are independent contractors and so they can't be afforded these benefits. But you're right to say when employers try to avoid unions, they often use carrots to try to entice their own workforces into deciding that they don't need a union, that they can improve uh, wages and working conditions on their own. It doesn't appear, though, that Fudora has been 
handing out very many carrots in the run-up to this unionization drive. And so it'll be interesting to see what the result is next week. So if if this was to go down the path and they unionized, do you think that would set a precedent? Would we see other drivers, say Uber drivers or Lyft drivers, would we see other members of the gig economy doing the same? Absolutely. And in Toronto, you already see that Uber drivers are in the midst of an organizing drive uh, as we speak. I think that if there's a breakthrough with Fudora workers, you will see Fudora workers across the country turn their attention uh, to the results of this unionization drive and seriously consider unionization as a vehicle to make their work better, to make their work safer. And and have you looked at or, or has it happened in other places where it's looked at as well? I mean, part of the reason that these companies are successful is because of the cost. And I would imagine they argue that the reason that when you get your food delivered by Foodora, that it's still affordable for the consumer is because there's not a huge overhead. If those costs to the consumers, whether it be food delivery or ride sharing, ride hailing, suddenly jumps up, does that not open the door to people not using it as much? Well, that depends on how the company decides that it's going to absorb the additional cost. It can choose to try to push additional costs onto the customers. But as I said earlier, they can also simply decide that they don't need to take in as many profits and they can keep their rates exactly as they are. I mean, we shouldn't kid ourselves. Companies like Uber and Foodora Uh, are very, very profitable companies to suggest that they would somehow go under if they had to treat their employees uh, with the basic employment standards that any other worker gets, I think, uh, suggests that that's not the kind of business model that we should be promoting. And so are they going to argue, or have we seen them argue in the past, like you said, they say that uh, these uh, workers are not employees, they're independent contractors. Does right. that argument hold, or has it, has it held in, in, other, uh, in other scenarios like this? In different jurisdictions, the courts and labour boards have had to wrestle with this issue. I think what we expect to see in Toronto next week is before the ballots are actually counted in this certification vote, that you are going to see Fudora and the union arguing at the Labor Relations Board about the status of these workers. And if the Labor Relations Board determines that they are not independent contractors, they'll go ahead and count the votes. Uh, But there is a possibility that uh, the Labor Relations Board could side with Fudora and say that these workers are independent contractors, in which case they'd be denied the union. But that's a battle that uh, that I expect is going to start up next week. It'll be an interesting one to watch as well, because we're also talking about when, when you're looking at benefits and, and everything else that would come with this, is that even if you're in a union environment, I mean, you still need to work a certain number of hours to qualify. You still need to meet all of these marks. And when we're talking about something like an Uber driver, where you turn on the app when you want to work and you turn the app off when you don't, uh, it, it seems like it would be, it's, it's a different scenario in tracking. It's not as though you're working for somebody that assigns you hours and assigns you shifts. Well, yes and no. Some of these uh, um, uh, companies are actually much more strict with scheduling than I think most people think. Fudora couriers, for example, don't control their own schedules in the way that some other gig economy workers do. And that's part of the union's argument for why they should uh, not be considered independent contractors. 
So um, when it comes to extending minimum standards, like minimum wage, for example, there's no expectation that an employer would pay minimum wage to someone who wasn't working. It would be during the time that they're working that they would be uh, entitled to such benefits. Uh, it, it is a gray area, right? There's, there are no clear black and white answers here. And when we draft labor legislation, it's often on a model of decades ago of the nine to five job, made factory work, etc. It's really important, I think, for governments to keep up with changes in the gig economy that don't allow employers and new sort of ventures to hyper exploit workers by denying them the basic entitlements that they would get in any other kind of job. Uh, And I think that at their core, Canadians do believe in this sense of fairness uh, at work. And uh, it's something that I think governments need to pay closer attention to. Well, we will certainly be paying uh, close attention to the vote and seeing what happens next with this. Uh, Larry Savage, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Well, this story has a lot of different aspects to it. The crux is a couple was jaywalking. The couple, the woman was hit by a motorcycle. The man who witnessed the crash has now been awarded almost $100,000 because he suffered nervous shock, which all came from the crash. And it happened back in March of 2013. We are just learning about the award now. But it really has raised a lot of questions about this particular case. Who was at fault? And is this a an award that fits what happened. Let's bring in lawyer Kyla Lee with Acumen Law to talk a little bit more about this and to walk us through this case. Kyla Lee, thank you so much for being with us again. Um, walk us through this because it's it's a different case in that when we talk about awards or uh, payments when it comes to car crashes, we generally are talking about uh, the person who is injured uh, themselves. In this case, though, we're talking about a witness and we're talking about people who were jaywalking. So how do all the movies parts kind of come together in your eyes? Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that this individual wasn't just somebody witnessing a stranger uh, get hit by a motorcycle. Um, The two people that were jaywalking were a married couple. And so um, the husband witnessed his wife uh, get run over by a motorcycle. And I think when you add in that layer of the fact that there was, you know, a very close loving relationship between these two people, the The idea that you would experience significant trauma from seeing something bad happen to somebody you love is a lot more easy to understand and easy to accept. Right. And we should be clear. So she she wasn't killed in the crash and she uh, filed a separate lawsuit for damages for her for her injuries. Uh, That case uh, had already been settled. But this particular case and this settlement has to do with nervous shock. Yes. And the law doesn't preclude people who have witnessed traumatic events from suing um, for compensation as a result of any psychological injuries that they suffer from that. So if you're you know, driving down the road and you see a huge car crash and, and somebody's injured and you're emotionally affected by that, you can get damages. The psychological evidence that was led in this case showed that this person developed a very significant depressive disorder that that negatively impacted his life and his ability to earn an income. And that's where the the significant award um, comes from. It's because of how 
significantly his life was altered on the basis of what he witnessed happen that day. It also came into play the fact that they were jaywalking and that they didn't go to the marked crossing, which wasn't that far away. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on what the judge said about that in that, yes, they were jaywalking, but it was still 25% of, I think it was 25% of the, the motorcycle rider's fault. Yeah, that um, I think that's an important thing uh, for the judge to have taken into consideration that even people who have been not physically injured in accidents can still bear some responsibility for it. The evidence that was led in this case appeared to suggest that he was responsible for the decision to jaywalk and not go down to the crosswalk and, and proceed that way. And so the, the amount of damages that he was awarded was reduced um, by essentially 75% to the uh, 98000 and some change that he received. So had he not been responsible for the collision by initiating the jaywalking, the judge found that the actual amount of damages he would have been entitled to would have been over $300,000. Right. So, and he got, I think, yeah, so we got a percentage of that based on the, the percentage of fault, I suppose, that the, the judge found. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about the fact also that here they were jaywalking, but the judge did also find that the motorcycle was parsh, uh, partially to blame? That's an accurate statement of the law. Any time a driver, motorcycle driver or driver of a vehicle is on the roadway, they have a responsibility to every other road user. There are numerous responsibilities found in the common law, so just come from the development of cases in court, but also specific responsibilities in the Motor Vehicle Act. There are sections that say you as a driver have to yield to a pedestrian, and it doesn't really matter where the pedestrian is. If they're in front of you, you have to yield regardless of whether they're lawfully there. Um, You also have a duty as a driver under Section 144 of the Motor Vehicle Act to exercise reasonable consideration to other people around you while you're using the road. And so because the driver had failed in those duties, um, the evidence in this case was that uh, the roadway was clear, there were no obstructions, there were stopped vehicles to indicate that something was in the roadway, and um, the, uh, the plaintiff here was wearing a bright yellow sweater that would have been easy to spot. Um, this driver bore some responsibility for not slowing down and allowing them to cross, even if they were doing so unlawfully. So technically then couldn't, and I suppose the difference being that there's there's not a relationship between the motorcycle rider and the person injured, uh, but couldn't could the motorcycle rider also then make a case that he too is emotionally scarred or he too uh, suffered from this nervous shock from being involved in this that was partially caused by people jaywalking? Yes. Um, And this uh, often happens in the cases of accidents where you'll see both parties involved in a collision being apportioned different levels of responsibility and both parties being awarded damages as a result of their different level of responsibility. So had this this motorcycle rider, and we don't know whether he did or not, um, suffered some emotional shock, which... I would expect he did, given the you know the nature of the collision. Um, then he would also receive an award um, commensurate with his level of fault um, for for any damages that he suffered as a result of the collision. The case is getting, or the stories about this, the has been getting a lot of uh, response from people. Uh, a lot of people seem to be questioning this, saying, "Well, doesn't it open the door then? Anytime you are out and about, if you witness something that you find traumatic, then suddenly we become litigious and we go after money, saying, "No, I must be compensated for this." 
No, the traumatic sort of experience has to be foreseeable as a result of what happens. So it can't just be, you know, some type of mildly traumatic incident that you happen to be walking by. The damage that you would suffer as a result of a traumatic incident has to be something that can be easily predicted. And it has to be directly caused by the witnessing of a traumatic incident. Courts will also take into account the emotional frailty of a person leading up to this. If you're somebody, and this is called the crumbling skull rule, if you're somebody who's on the brink of an emotional breakdown, and this is, you know, the the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, you may not get anything because it may be determined that you were on your way there um, about to, you know, about to fall off that ledge anyway. Right. Uh, is it is it also, do we see this, is it more common in cases of, of motor vehicle crashes in that there is that mechanism, whether it's ICBC or whatnot, to go after damages? I, I mean, it, seem, it seems like it would be different than, say, if you were riding transit and you saw someone be hit by a train, would you then be able, and you were, and you could prove that it caused you uh, this, this trauma, would you then be able to go after, say, TransLink? Uh, you may be able to go after TransLink if you can demonstrate that TransLink was negligent in how they were operating their trains. But if somebody just, you know, jumped in front of the train at the last second and TransLink bore no responsibility, your lawsuit would be against the estate of the person who put themselves in that position. The the problem that arises in those cases is that oftentimes you're trying to collect from from somebody that doesn't have any money or, or collect from a mechanism that doesn't allow for the easy facilitation of these claims. We already have the insurance system. There's a, a, a very well thought out process to settle claims through ICBC um, that makes it a very user friendly process that I think encourages more of these lawsuits in that context. And do, are we seeing an increase, do you think, or even anecdotally uh, in lawsuits or cases like this? I don't think we're seeing an increase of of lawsuits related to uh, emotional distress from witnessing uh, collisions. Um, I I think the reality is that any time there are collisions, we see awards that are given for emotional harm. Most of the judgments that you read, if you look at um, litigation stemming from motor vehicle collisions, will have some type of an award for damages related to psychological harm suffered because the person's been in a collision or because they witnessed the collision. All right. Well, it's an interesting case. It certainly uh, is generating a lot of conversation. Thank you so much uh, for being with us and walking us through it. Uh, Also wanted to say to you, uh, just before we let you go, uh, congratulations as well, because you have just recently been named uh, Canadian Lawyers, one of the top 25 most influential people in the justice system. So congratulations to you. Thank you. (laughs) All right, Kyla Lee, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Dr. Myers, can you hear me? Hi, yeah, it's Captain Alan Myers. Captain, sorry, uh, my mistake. Sorry about that, and sorry about the technical uh, problems with this. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, We certainly have had a lot of attention paid to what's being done in uh, Washington State. So tell us a bit about the the Bear Dog Program. How does that work? Yeah, so the Corellian Bear Dog Program is is one in which it's, it's a pioneering one within the United States where we have Corellian Bear Dogs working in law enforcement capacity within Washington State. And in, in our department, it's specifically used to help us control uh, problem wildlife uh, of large carnivores, uh, large predators such as bears and cougars. It's an extremely effective tool, and it's a non-lethal tool in which has saved hundreds and hundreds of bears over the years that the program has been enacted, uh, and, and countless cougars as well, in a non-lethal way. And then uh, with, of course, the, the main 
uh, goal and mission that was uh, has been successful with this program, which was paramount, which was supporting public safety. So, how do these bear, or sorry, how do these dogs know what to do? So, these dogs are um, innately bred to uh, be bear hunters. They're, they come from a p- part of Eastern Europe in Russia. Uh, where they uh, a, 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 a community or a, or a region in that in that area where they were bred specifically to hunt bears to help hunters find track and and locate bears. So these these bear dogs, uh, as they're called, Karelian bear dogs. Karelian is the uh, is the region in which they were they were founded from. Uh, they are uh, already uh, right out of the womb able to uh, have this innate uh, hunting and tracking feature. Uh, and what, what they also come with is the ability to have uh, extreme courage and fearlessness when it comes to facing down very large animals, such as bears and cougars. These are amazing little dogs. They, they are extremely agile. Uh, they're, uh, in their purebred form, they're, they're black and white. We call them land pandas. Uh, they're very charismatic and fuzzy. They, they are, um, in body style, very similar to a Siberian Husky, but uh, a little bit beefier and, and, and a heck of a lot uh, more intense and, and, and agile. And they uh, are um, incredible uh, to watch when they're going up against a, a large bear or, or going up against a cougar, to, that they uh, are able to, to track and, and tree or, or corner and allow us to capture in a safe and effective manner. And so then you capture, do you capture the animal, then relocate, and the idea is the relocation hopefully will work and the animal won't come back to that area? Well, that's a good question. So we found that before we had Curly and Bear Dog Program, we, we had uh, two very uh, ineffective options, right? And the first is relocation. Relocation of a, of a bear or cougar is, is extremely ineffective and extremely harmful for the resource and not very good for the public as well. Because if you take an animal such as a bear or cougar and you relocate it to a remote region, you generally relocate that animal into another animal's territory. So in a cougar's case, that means almost certain death for the cougar. And, and for a bear's case, that'll either be death or by starvation or, or death from the other uh, bear that's territory you're transplanting it in. Uh, or it'll be just a return of that bear because it will walk many, many miles to come right back to the place in which you captured it from. And now that's the problem with relocation. Now the other option which we had to employ many, many times, uh, uh, unfortunately, was euthanasia. We'd have to dispatch or destroy the animal. So those two options were the only real two options that we had when it came to, to dangerous or potentially dangerous wildlife encounters in, in urban environments. So what we needed, because I command an area that includes the Seattle metro area all the way to the Canadian border in the northwest corner of the state, we needed a tool that could help us manage the very complex issue of urban bears and urban cougar, urban wildlife problems. And we needed a tool that was non-lethal in the sense that it was effectively non-lethal so we could help the resource as well as help public safety first and foremost. And this bear dog program was pioneered in which uh, we saw early promise in and um, have been able to use it effectively to help us with, with this issue. What we do is called a aversive conditioning and a hard release of, of bears and cougars, uh, bears mostly. Cougars are, are a little bit different, but bears, problem bears are aversively conditioned and, and hard released, meaning if you get a bear that's a trash bear, a bear that is a, a nuisance bear that's come into a neighborhood, we we use the Corellian bear dogs to track, locate, and help us track, uh, trap that animal. We'll, we'll tranquilize the animal, put it in a, a culvert trap, 
and then we'll use the dogs to aversively condition after the animal comes out of sedation, which is essentially the Karelian bear dog will bark, bark like crazy and harass the heck out of that bear and really make that bear know that it is not welcome where it was, where it was found at. Very, very uh, uh, good to help uh, to, to train those bears because bears are a clever critter. They can learn, and they learn that where, they, where they can and can't go, and they do that really effectively if you have a, a snarling dog barking in their face uh, for a period of time. All right. So after a period of aversive conditioning, we release the bear from the culvert trap after it's come out of sedation, and there's officers standing by with non-lethal beanbag rounds and cracker shells that fire at the bear to give it that extra kick out of the trap. As the bear starts to run, we release the Corellian bear dogs, who chase after it, nipping at its heels, and ensure that that bear knows it should never come back to the location in which it was causing a problem. It's, and it's very, very effective. Now, it's not 100%. All not right. 100% effective tool. All right, uh, Captain, we'll have to leave it there. My apologies. Uh, we did run out of time, and my apologies. Oh, sure. We had a few technical difficulties uh, getting to you, but that is Captain Alan Myers uh, with the Department of Fish and Wildlife in Washington State.